I think you thrive by thinking bigger and bigger and different and saying, well, you know, this month we got 100 hits. Next month, it's not that we want to get 150 hits. It's that we want to get the same 100 hits, but we want them to stay longer on the site. Welcome to the Marketing Innovators Podcast. This is the show for marketing innovators everywhere who want to push the boundaries of marketing and learn about cutting edge strategies and channels that are working today. Join us each week to hear from industry-leading marketers as they share best practices and what is working for them. This episode is brought to you by TubeWeb. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At TubeWeb, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at TubeWeb.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Marketing Innovators Podcast show today. We have an guest. Roger Lal, from, uh, who is the VP of Marketing at uh, Attraction Guest. So, uh, hey, Roger, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. Well, I mean, I was going through your profile online, so what I'll do is uh, maybe ask you to uh, introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background. Sounds good. So as, as you mentioned, uh, Roger Lal, VP Product Marketing, VP Marketing here at Traction Guest. I started my career several decades ago doing sales and marketing or an enterprise resource planning uh, software integration kind of scenario. Uh, it was actually a subsidiary of a BC-based company, and we were doing work out in Korea. Uh, so started way off in Asia, doing sort of sales and marketing for ERP systems. Did that for several years, came back to Canada, did uh, a stint with a system in integrator, value-added reseller, did that for a few years, moved over and worked for RIM slash BlackBerry for probably about a decade, maybe a dozen years there. And really that was, that became the foundation of a lot of what I'm doing currently in terms of product marketing, a lot of field marketing exposure as responsible for the vertical or industry program at, at RIM, as well as interestingly enough, spent some time in the analyst relations area. So I started understanding more about market research, competitive intelligence, things of that out. From there, moved into more of a startup scale-up kind of phase. So started working for a couple different organizations. One was a content management company uh, just based outside of Toronto. Again, sort of scale-up type organization. Moved from there to a health tech company that actually just recently went public. So very, very glad for them. And then recently joined Traction Guest, which is an organization looking at physical security and solutions thereof. But again, sort of an, another great Canadian scale-up type opportunity. Wow. I mean, that's such a diverse experience. I mean, you have had the opportunity to go across the world, work in, uh, was it South Korea? It was, it was South Korea. Uh, so not I North there. Korea. Okay. Uh, no, thankfully not North Korea. <laughs> I worked in South Korea. I've done quite a bit of time in, in done uh, quite a bit of time uh, working in Europe and a little bit of personal time traveling uh, Latin America. So. Excellent. You probably learned a lot from that experience, you know, working in all these different places, as well as, you know, I'm assuming when you were at RIM, RIM was one of the pinnacles of, uh, you know, technology at one stage, and, and they were so advanced at many different levels. So you probably learned a lot from that experience and, and brought that experience to Traction Guest. So what does that background look like? I mean, how has that helped with your sure. work here at uh, Traction Guest? It's interesting, you know, we, we joke about RIM and BlackBerry and, and, and the demise thereof. You know, I, I enjoyed some of the ups, uh, quite a bit of the ups and a uh, little bit of the downs. And then I moved on. But look, you know, it's interesting. They've actually pivoted and they're, they're now a renewed company. And if I were to tell you that there's this tech company making billions of dollars and global organizations serving Fortune 500, you'd be all excited about it. But if I told you they're BlackBerry, you're like, oh, oh, not as much. So it's, uh, you know, I think they've done some incredible things as they pivoted out of their former self. But 
you know, from that time, I, I take so many great experiences. We really built a category, at, at, you know, and it's hard to remember back then, but there really was no concept of the smartphone. There were PDAs, there were, you know, T9 type flip phones uh, out in the market. And there was this burgeoning notion that there could be some sort of, of a tool that merged at that time. It was email with your cell phone. And we were really a pioneer in, in, in building up that category. It's interesting. You know, I take a lot of the, the sort of category creation type lessons from that experience. And I brought them over, you know, when I was at AdLib, uh, looking at content management, we built up a new category around content analytics, which got recognized in Forrester and Gartner and, and places like that. And similarly, uh, you know, the, some of the work that I'm doing with Traction Guest, we're starting to evolve ourselves from what historically has been a visitor management point solution type of industry into what we're describing as more of a workforce security platform. Uh, mm -hmm. So something that is a much more extensible and highly integratable and really uh, much more cross-functional in nature. So this notion of building out a category and being a leader in a new area, I think has driven a lot of my career interest uh, following RIM. Mm. What does Traction Guest do and serve? Sure. So Traction Guest historically has been in a space called visitor management. Visitor management is a subset of physical security. And historically, it was all about, you know, somebody walks into, into the building, into the office, into the manufacturing plant, a non-employee. You need to be able to greet them, sign them in, register them process them and connect them into their host for, you know, whatever their purpose is. They, they could be a contractor doing some work. They could be a, a guest just uh, visiting to, for a potential partnership, you know, all sorts of things. And historically, that was a very operational consideration. It was how do we reduce the amount of time and labor for a receptionist or a host during that process? That market has evolved and it's gone through that sort of standard adoption curve. And now what we see is, you know, where we position ourselves is far, far away from improving by 10% the receptionist day in life of to a scenario where we're looking at it from a value proposition. We look at it from a security perspective. So it really is about how do we help large enterprise organizations deal with the security risk that is imposed when people, individuals visit your organization. So a lot of our customers think about, you know, and th these are again, large Fortune 500 customers, a lot of them in the manufacturing space, financial services, aerospace, things of that ilk. They look at it from a compliancy, regulatory, branding, uh, duty of care kind of perspective. And, and for them, you know, the risk of, you know, somebody coming into your building or your facility that is on a known what terrorist watch list or that has a criminal record or that worked for a competitor or that was a previous employee at a different location and has a grudge to bear, right? Those kind of scenarios represent significant threat and significant risk. So we've created a platform that allows you to manage that in, in a very creative manner. What's interesting is, you know, over the last year with COVID, we pivoted what we've been delivering. So shifting our mindset from visitor as the threat, now it's become employee as a threat. So we've had to help organizations deal with when an employee comes into the building, how do we greet them? Do we have to do a health attestation? Do we have to take a temperature? Do we need to monitor where they're placed or how many days they're in the office or who they're working with? That kind of, of scenario is obviously very different from, from a use case and then from a development perspective, but it really sort of fulfills the same mandate from our perspective in terms of our mission to help 
organizations become safe and secure places for everyone. Well, I know a lot of businesses have pivoted during the COVID phase, and it seems that uh, you've taken a drastic shift in terms of uh, the target audience for, for traction. Yeah, right? it's interesting. You know, certainly the buyer committee or, or the group purchasers that are involved with this decision, certainly security, a global security leader is still front and center for us. That's kind of where we were born out of, as I mentioned, how, how we've kind of grown up. They're still a significant player in this healthcare uh, kind of crisis that we've gone through in the last year. But we've layered onto that some additional uh, buyers. So now we're talking more and more with HR or with employee health and safety, with risk and compliance uh, leaders. It's really broadened the way in which we manage our accounts. So this has been part and parcel of, you know, conveniently enough, an ongoing shift to more of an account-based marketing approach. And this is something we, we would have gone to, to naturally, but I think COVID's kind of sped us up by, you know, six to 12 months. So we were moving from maybe security in, into risk, into uh, operations, into compliance. And here we've kind of gone HR, EHS, risk operations, or, or you know, whatever that landscape is, whatever the direction is. And so we, we've got, you know, two kind of ends coming together to create an entire account perspective for us. So you mentioned account-based marketing, and I know a lot of companies, uh, it's a very focused, very specific and highly intensive form of marketing <laughs> that, that takes a lot of effort. I'd be interested to know a little bit more, and also because of our audience here, that, you know, what kind of marketing has really worked well for Traction Guest and what kind of results have you received from account-based marketing? Sure. So we, we've just got into the account-based journey. And I, I really do think it's a journey. I'll start with that. I also think you need to balance. So we have historically been very much, and actually it's, it's been an interesting shift. So historically, it was actually a lot of SMB kind of accounts that we were dealing with. And as I mentioned, very much an operational ROI, replace the receptionist type value proposition. Then, you know, we, we spent a lot of time, it, so that was maybe four or five years ago. Then two, three years ago, we got into more of a enterprise, complex security type sales. So, you know, a few things go along with it is we start to focus on, you know, our ideal client profile. We start to focus on larger versus smaller. We start to say deals are no longer, I'm making up the numbers, but they go from $3,000 deals to $30,000 deals. They go from, you know, three-week sales cycles to three-month sales cycles. They go from, you know, three people on the, on the purchasing decisions to 13 or 14 people in, in the decision cycle. So we've been going through that journey over the last little while. And COVID kind of hits and takes us off a little bit, maybe sidetracks us a little bit, but also gets us further along that journey to a broader sense of what the account looks like. And so today, in the, you know, in the last quarter, we, we've just put together our target account list. So, so a bit of orchestration effort between sales and marketing to define, not just saying sort of enterprise or ideal client and persona, but now getting into here are the specific hundred or so companies that we're gonna be looking to target. From that, we've been drilling out on, on who are the contacts within those organizations and now looking at how do our set of demand gen activities overlap and support that account-based marketing sort of initiative. So that, that's kind of where we're at right now is, is we're sort of bridging that gap between we still need leads, we still need pipeline, we still need to make it to the next quarter, 
but we definitely want to see more of, of this account-based marketing area sort of grow up. So I, I think it's a balancing act as opposed to flipping the switch. You know, I've seen many organizations sort of flip the switch. I would argue that that's a particularly risky move. And, and my concern is with a lot of account-based marketing, you know, just because you are interested in Coca-Cola doesn't mean that Coke is interested in you. Right. So you, you right. need to still be doing that demand gen type activity to find the Pepsis and the Sprites and the whatever else that might happen to be out there. Absolutely. And it's worthwhile the investment when it comes to, you know, creating programs related to account-based marketing if you're targeting specific leads or specific clients. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to that demand generation or creating awareness for traction guests, have you tried any other marketing methods that have worked well? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly traction guest, I'd say throughout my history, I probably touched just about everything, you know, content marketing, trade shows, direct marketing, large events, small boutique events, you name it, I've probably done it. And then some, you know, certainly some have been better than others. Traction guest, we're still early days. I joined probably six months ago. So we're still in the midst of transforming the, the marketing organization. And we've also got, you know, a whole bunch of things going on, right? We've, we've got the shift into ABM. We've got the shift for demand gen and, and numbers and pipeline and marketing. We've got a shift in terms of, of that enterprise focus. We've got a shift in COVID and, and product. We've got category creation. So we've got a lot of things on the go at the same time. So we, from a, a marketing perspective, I'll be honest, we do a lot of conservative marketing or audience, again, as global security leaders, very conservative group, not, you know, typically you're tech savvy, you know, digital media, SEOable kind of a group. They're, they're not high LinkedIn, Facebook users. They tend to be a little bit reticent to engage. They tend to talk to a lot of their peers. So really we're doing a lot of work in and around sort of content and marketing and building up that area so that they have good thick materials to, to go through so that they understand and can differentiate. We've been developing case study materials that they, from a sort of social proof perspective, we've been leveraging a lot of association and review sites. So trying to go where the customer is, as opposed to trying to bring them somewhere where they are not. We've been participating in our industry in, you know, ISC and ASIS, our industry associations. Uh, we participated in, in their webinars and their events. Uh, we just had one recently, we hosted a webinar with ASIS that had 800 some odd attendees, which is you know, probably 10x what we might, might have expected if, if we did our own thing or if we tried to you know, do a traditional email blast. So we're finding a lot of success in, again, understanding our clients, knowing our target marketing, knowing our, our ICP, knowing our personas, finding out where they live, and then going to those places, uh, you know, making sure that it's not unnatural for them. You know, I find that the webinars are really an underutilized form of marketing that many companies sometimes don't spend the, the right amount of time towards. And I think that, um, you know, you mentioned that you did this webinar, you've done webinars in association with other organizations, sure. which I think is extremely powerful because they are the ones who, who are driving your target audience to the, to the webinar and you're able to basically showcase your solutions and your company to that audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of organizations and myself included, because I've done this certainly over the years, you, you put out webinars, you send out the email, you end up sort of talking to the same people about the same things over and over. 
I think by partnering with, they could be third-party associations, they could be you know industry events, they could be analysts, they could be media, or, or even just frankly, uh, vendor partners, channel partners, VARs, SIs in your particular space. That's how you start to expand the story and start to connect the dots to different, different audiences. And I think that's really where the value and, and the interest comes. I'd also say, you know, I think to some extent, the webinars that vendors put on, and myself included, are really more of video commercials or product descriptors or, or proof points. I mean, they're, they're still valuable. They tell, still tell a meaningful story. They still lead you down that nurture path. They still, you know, depending on what, what the topic is, they can push you through, you know, at the bottom of the funnel if, if they're a little bit more ROI oriented or how-to videos. But I don't know that they're necessarily as top of funnel as we might like to think. And, and I think, you know, some of these associations on the other hand, are better utilized for broadening your reach and for getting out there. I think it's important to kind of think and contextualize, and we probably have the wrong words as an industry. You know, we, we sort of think about webinars, you know, I don't know, a decade, 15 years ago, that that became the big word. And now videos and, and you know, certainly Vidyard and, and YouTube have done a great job of, of turning this into a thing, another category. That's become, you know, the on-demand one-to-one personalized videos become a thing. And I think we oftentimes sort of merge or overlap the way that we think about them. And I think that that can be sort of to, to your detriment. So I think, you know, it's important not to overestimate or, or rely too much on any one tactic, I guess. You know, don't think that, you know, this webinar is going to be magical. No, it, it's one of many. And the webinar becomes an on-demand asset and becomes a video that goes further in the funnel. It's something for a future newsletter, right? It's still great content. Then you can repurpose it and turn that into a blog post and turn that into an infographic or what have you. Really good content. But it's only, I guess, content is only as good as the promotional side. You know, one of my pet peeves at a previous organization, and this is all, all on me, but we would, you know, come up with great webinar content, great, you know, PowerPoint slides and, and talk tracks and customer presentation stuff. But, you know, we would fail on the promotion side. We, we do sort of the standard three emails and away you go. And, you know, when you think about the resources that went into thinking about the topic and coming with the title and figuring out the content, and then you, you just do year three and you're done, I think it's such a waste. And, you know, I think this is also true if I look at, at you know, blog posts is another example. We put up a blog post and we say, how many hits did it get? And then we're done. But, you know, the reality is customers don't work like that. The customers need, I mean, there's a cliche comment that needs, you need to tell them seven times before they start understanding. And you know, I had one colleague that they used to talk about, used to joke that the moment that you get sick of hearing the story is the exact moment that the customer first starts understanding your story. And, and so just as you're ready to sort of give up and move on, that's just when they're starting to pick up on, on what you're describing. So, you know, I think I, I'd encourage organizations probably myself included, to repurpose material, to use it more and more. Again, recontextualize different audiences, update it, modernize it, slap on a different logo, throw in a different speaker. But there's nothing wrong with repurposing and reusing that content because you're going to be talking to different people at different times at different stages in their cycle. Love that. Love that. I mean, yes, building content is such a pain. And uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's important for organizations to repurpose it. And I find that you know, a lot often organizations or businesses, they, they take one aspect about marketing and they really try to excel at it. But it's actually, you have to think about the customer journey. And you have to think about all the different touch points that a customer has when they think about your brand or when they're searching your brand online. 
So blog articles is one piece, webinars is another piece, but you know, it's a combination of a number of things that that needs to align with the user journey or the customer journey to make it mm-hmm. effective. I'm sure everyone's seen, you know, the diagrams of the customer journey and the customer funnel and how, you know, it's no longer sort of a nice Y-shaped funnel. It's sort of a squiggly line that goes all over the place. And you just don't know when you're going to touch that customer, right? It, you know, there's a the famous sort of Forrester stat about whatever, 75% of the sales cycle is done before the customer even enters your purview. There's sort of that dark funnel, if you will. And I, I think people sort of forget that, right? Just how much research is going on behind the scenes. And and I think just because you have a blog post doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a webinar or or that you shouldn't do a video or that you shouldn't update, you know, change the date, update it with new information, you know, correct a few things here and there and repurpose it because that might be just the piece of information that wasn't particularly valuable to that person yesterday, but today it's the number one thing on their mind. You know, I, I think about myself even for anything that I'm in the market to buy. I typically, I have a long, as a personal shopper, I tend to have a longer sales cycle. I tend to overthink and overanalyze, you know, I'll, I'll hunt around and, and my interest level is, is kind of at a 10% for a long time. And then all of a sudden it's at a hundred percent and then it drops off. And, and it's that catch of how do you catch that window when it's a hundred percent? That's right. Yes. Golden nuggets. <laughs> Thanks uh, for sharing that. I mean, I think that it's a journey. Uh, marketing efforts, uh, you have to really understand it's a journey. It doesn't stop at one strategy or one tactic. So, 100%. You, you got to meet your client where they are, you know, whatever medium they, they want, whatever time they want. And look, some people like to read, some people want to watch a video. And that same person that wanted to watch a video yesterday, today wants to read the article. You, you don't know. That's right. So when it comes to the vision for Traction Guest and where it's heading in, in future, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you see that? Because you mentioned that it has changed so much during COVID and also it's evolving as well. Yeah. What is the future of Traction Guest? <laughs> so there's a lot of great stuff going on and, and we've just started repositioning ourselves uh, around this notion of a workforce security platform. And what we mean when, when we describe that is this notion that in our space, there are a ton of individual point solutions and they try to be oftentimes jack of all trades, master of none. And really what we're looking at is how do we become a platform that is easy for organizations to really reimagine how they deploy their security. So instead of taking a a single tool that sort of forces you into a specific manner or a specific process. What our tool allows you to do is to, you know, achieve that, that point solution goal, yes, but also to integrate to third-party tools, to best of breed systems, to get that data going back and forth and to create a workflow that is customized to the particular use case scenario. So we see this notion of a platform. And again, in this industry, this is very uncommon. Uh, this is not how the industry has been built. It's been built off of, again, these very rigid point solutions that don't play nice with the others. So we're a big believer in the notion of a platform that delivers on visitor management, as I talked about as, as sort of our upbringing, if you will, but also on what we describe as safety controls, health and safety controls, and also delivers on sort of critical communications and outreach. So it's it sort of the, this multi-pronged uh, platform, if you will, that delivers much, much more than just you know, a single point solution. It has some, some variety to it, and it has the ability to integrate to third-party best-of-breed solutions. So you know, we, we start to see ourselves as layering on different functionality and working with best-of-breed uh, industry partners, and that's how we see ourselves growing. 
when it comes to communicating this vision, you mentioned that, you know, with your content marketing background, have you found that there's uh, certain kinds of content that work well in communicating this more effectively? Or is it a matter of just, you know, presenting the information on the website and that's it? I would say it's neither of those, (laughs) to be honest. So it's definitely not presented on the website and you're done. I think, uh, you know, and again, oftentimes marketers make the mistake of of sort of overweighting on SEO. If we put it up and we SEO or SEM, you know, we're good to go. That's one medium. Our organization is a perfect example where we have a, a relatively low fidelity, if you will, audience that isn't apt to search, to look online for these kind of things. They tend to talk within their community. So, you know, having the website is one part of it. It's the maybe the long tail, if you will, of that content. And so to that end, I don't know that there is, you know, to say no to the other part of your question, is there a perfect medium? I don't know that there is one best. I think it is having that variety of options. It is having a webinar and a white paper and an infographic and, and a one pager, you know, and a presentation deck and a pre-recorded video. All those things. It's not that I'm going to give, you know, that full collection to to Bill. It's Bill on Tuesday wants a video and Jane on Wednesday wants a blog post. And you just don't know. And, and, and so I think you do over time need to have that full collection. Now, again, they, they can be repurposed and, and, and they, you, you can leverage off the different pieces. And it certainly, it absolutely takes time and skill and patience. This doesn't happen overnight, but you do, I think, need to cover all those bases over time. So, you know, one of the things that I found particularly critical and, and interestingly enough, a lot of marketers kind of gloss, gloss over this, but when you think through content, I would argue it's less about sort of content calendar ring, if you will. So sort of thinking about content from a date perspective, I like to think of, of content, if I picture sort of an Excel sheet, more from a, a sortability perspective of, you know, what audience is it hitting and what stage of the, of the buyer's journey is it hitting and, and what format is it hitting and what vertical is it hitting and what product is it, is it hitting? So that over time, you want to develop a, a, almost a content matrix whereby you, you start to have individual assets for any one of those combinations and permutations. So I want to have a, an infographic on product A for vertical X. Well, we have that. We have something that fits that need. Right? So I think it's building up the variety of content. Are there any metrics that you actually pay more attention to when it comes to measuring what is working and what isn't? It's funny, I was chatting with a colleague just this morning about that exact question. I'll share what I shared with him. So this is not my job interview question because I have a much better one for how do you measure things? And there's lots of formal approaches. But my honest belief in content marketing, I got to be careful how I say this, but what I'll say is I don't think you should measure it. And, and let me put some qualifiers around it. Where I was going with this particular conversation was, I think it can be very spurious to connect the dot between I made a piece of content and we made revenue or we got a higher close rate or we have so many leads. I think that that might be a team metric that we're collectively working on as a a marketing group. We absolutely have those kind of things. But I think to say that this individual one-off white paper, whatever, or, or blog post is responsible for this pipeline I think it does two things. I think one, it, it puts way too much, let's say, pressure or responsibility or what have you on, on that piece of content. And two, it, to be honest, it's a little insulting to all the other pieces that go along in terms of that attribution. So you know, that a person went to see your blog 
might be because you had an awesome topic, you had a great speaker, you had an amazing SEO, you refresh, you know, your technical guy just redid the re-architected the website for mobile access. Demand team was promoting, promoting it in the newsletter. Like there's a dozen things that could happen that could make or break a given piece of content that don't necessarily have to do with the content. So I, I'm leery of making that spurious connection because it sort of, it sort of forces the, the content marketer to do unnatural things. Instead of just making you know, a collection of great content, they'll do unnatural things to make this one piece force feed their way through the system, even if it's not the right thing to do for the customer, right? So, so again, if I wanna fake my way and force this one infographic to get a thousand leads, I can do that, but is that the right thing to do? You know, I might've had 10,000 leads instead of one, th if I spread it across a collection, right? So, so I'm very leery of, of some of the metrics that I've seen out there. I do think you measure with all the content marketing type activities, almost as management by objective. So it's more a framework around, and, and they've got to be appropriate measures. You've got to be, you know, contextual to time, but you move step by step. So it might be 10 case studies. That might be a thing. And, once, and it's not that every quarter we need 10. It's okay, we're, we've done 10. That's no longer a big priority. We have a process in place. We can get the 11th one. We're not worried. Okay, this quarter, we're going to really focus in and we're going to build some infrastructure around, you know, re-architecting the blog for better usability, findability. And maybe the metric that quarter is, you know, time on site. Okay, and you work on that for a quarter and you do a bunch of, you know, you get better blog content and better better infrastructure and you, you do some great work. And then once that's in place, then you've got to look, look at the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. So I think you've got to be constantly moving that needle. I'm a big believer in, in not only moving the needle, but I think changing that a little bit, continuing to build and build and evolve. Otherwise, you're just sort of doing the same thing. You're saying, well, last quarter, you got 100 hits. This quarter, you know, get 150 and then 200. I don't think that's how marketers and frankly, individuals thrive. I think you thrive by thinking bigger and bigger and different and saying, well, you know, this month we got 100 hits. Next month, it's not that we want to get 150 hits. It's that we want to get the same 100 hits but we want them to stay longer on the site or, you know, this quarter, we, well, we got them staying longer. Now we want to fix this next problem, which is getting them to convert. Right. So you constantly evolve the objective. And that I think is how you set goals in sort of this, this step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step kind of basis. And again, you know, going back to the point of uh, aligning it with the customer journey, I think that's absolutely key as you are building these marketing assets and creating the content and the different varieties of content, you can, you know, then determine if it's aligning well with the journey or not, and, and if it's ultimately converting. Because I think conversion, that metric of conversion is really, really important for companies to address. And, um, you know, sometimes you have, uh, you know, with, for example, with account-based marketing, you know what accounts you're targeting, right? Yeah. So it's a different strategy altogether. It is. And, and again, this is where I, I'll give an example. We, we just did, you know, maybe a month ago, we have one customer. And the way that they've purchased, they have kind of a central purchasing division and then disparate, let's say, divisions within the organization. So we've sold to that central group, but we have not sold to the disparate groups. So I worked with the rep to do a, a custom you know, one pager, helping for them to sort of in-sell within the organization. So when one of those buying divisions purchases through the central group, using this one pager or whatever, using this video, using this asset, that's great, and it's revenue, 
but I'm not going to track it anywhere. There's no way for me to call that a lead. There's no way for me to, you know, to, to say that that's a new opportunity. It was flagged a year and a half ago because we've landed the customer, but we, we haven't done the penetration. So, you know, I think a lot of traditional marketing metrics would, wouldn't give credit to that. But account-based marketing starts to say, well, actually, no, 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 there is something to be said for growing the account and, and adding on. In this case, it's just a, a huge depth opportunity, a huge stickiness opportunity. And that's not even thinking through, you know, what about the upsell and then the resell? Do you think there's, there's some logic in thinking about account-based marketing from that measurement perspective, not just in terms of, yes, percentage engage, engagement of things of that ilk, but you start to think about the pipeline concept very differently, I think. Mm, that's true. So if you could go back in time, five or 10 years, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Boy, um, that's a great question. I think going back to my career, I, I've had some, some great opportunities and I've really enjoyed what, what I've done. I think I might have been, might encourage myself to get more involved quicker with some of these smaller companies. I've really enjoyed, and this has been my career trajectory in the last few years, a lot of these scale-up type organizations. So 100 people, 200 people type, type organizations. I found them particularly meaningful. Just the amount you know, that you can contribute as an individual and the amount that you can learn as an individual, I think far outweighs the benefits of the large companies. And don't get me wrong, I enjoyed my time at RIM. I had a great time. I enjoyed my time. You know, I was with an IBM subsidiary for a number of years. I enjoyed my time there. But I think you know, there's nothing quite the same as, as being in that. I can't say family because that's too small. You know, when you're a couple hundred people, you're, you're a solid team, but you're really doing things, you're doing meaningful things. Each person is, is super critical. Each element of contribution is super valuable. There is no fluff. There is no buffer. And I think, you know, that's something coming out of biz school that wasn't really discussed. You know, the emphasis of biz school was if you don't go to the big six consulting firms, then the next option was you go to a tier one CPG firm. The notion of, of and that was sort of the mindset. But I think, you know, the notion of working for not even a startup, because entrepreneurialism, I, I think that's another area. And it's a great, great thing. And, and it was discussed in school the idea of starting something. But I don't think that middle layer is ever really discussed. This notion that there are a lot of, you know, again, I'll say 200 person company, whatever the number is, where they're doing great work, they've got great customers, and there's this opportunity to double or triple that organization. I think that that's super exciting. So I think I would encourage myself and encourage others to get involved with that, that community above and beyond, you know, sort of the entrepreneurship is for some people, you know, the large organizations for some people, but I think that middle gap is, is I think super exciting and really, really under underserved. Do you think that's because they tend to be more resourceful or they tend to give more responsibilities to their employees or, or what's the mindset behind that? Yeah, I, I think there's a practical reality that, look, I, I have fewer resources dollar-wise and, and a smaller budget, so each person needs to be stretched just a little bit. And that can be either really scary and daunting and problematic for some, but it can also be really opportunistic and exciting for others. It, it gives you a chance to do your job and a half. And in, it's in that 
that half, you get to explore, you get to experience, you get to see, you know, what are the other areas that I want to pursue? And I, I think that that can get stifled a little bit when you're in a large organization, you're, you're kind of relegated to being more and more in this particular box and, and doing these particular things. So I think, you know, midsize, you've got to be resourceful. You've, you've got to push the limits. You've got to get super creative. And it's not necessarily that, that you're working any harder per se. I think everybody works hard, you know, small company, big company, but I think you, you work differently. And I think it's, there's a degree of passion and, you know, I'll, I'll continue my pitch for the us midsize. I think it's different than the entrepreneur world where there, there just are no resources. You're bootstrapping it and there's nothing. This next level up, the challenge there is we have some money. We we're going to invest in programs, but we've got to pick them. We got to be super careful about what we pick and choose, and we we've got to manage each program, you know, just right in order to capitalize on all all the possible benefits. I think it's at that next level up where you're like, oh, I've got three or four people, and they'll collectively manage it. We've got some buffer, and if if one doesn't work, we can hedge hedge our strategies. We don't have that luxury. And I think that forces a degree of creativity, uh, a degree of ownership, a degree of empowerment that in my experience doesn't exist at the larger organizations. Interesting. So based on your experience and the challenges that you've overcome, uh, if there was one big takeaway that you could give to our listeners, uh, what would that be? Big takeaway. Um, yes, just one. <laughs> just one. Just one. I think I've told this to other marketers because it was told to me and, and it continues to be true. I'd encourage marketers, it's a little cliche, but to, you know, to become best friends with sales. You know, don't be scared of them. Uh, don't be subservient to them. Don't guard over them. Don't whatever. Just become friends with them. Work closely with sales. They are your biggest partners. They can be your biggest advocates. They're definitely your biggest stakeholders. So you need to tap into that. The individuals are often great sources of information about clients. They're great feedback mechanisms. You talk about metrics and measures. I mean, that that's a great one to, to know if your if your tools, if your messaging is working. Ask sales, they'll, they'll tell you straight up and they, they tend to be very you know, straight shooters. I think I've learned this a little bit the hard way. I think I, I was scared and nervous and apprehensive about working for sales for, for many years, but I think I've you know, grown out of that and now have partnered much more closely with sales over the latter half of my career. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. A lot of companies, you see these marketing and sales departments, they're starting to merge a little bit. There's a lot of overlap, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's this tendency of, uh, you know, marketing is definitely about creating awareness and trying to bring those leads in. But a lot of times, you know, when you're actually bringing those leads in or you're bringing business into the company or interested prospects, you're actually giving them, you're nurturing them to a point where they are now so well informed that they're almost ready to make a decision, if not, not more. So, and then sales, it's a matter of obviously closing the lead. A lot of the pre-sales activities, I would say, are now being handled by a lot of the marketing departments. So, yeah, I mean, we, I can tell you, traction. Yes, we we just moved the BDR team over to marketing. I've seen this trend at, at a number of, of different organizations, and I do think it's, it's part of that notion of marketing taking more ownership for the quality, for the completeness, for the nurturing of a lead to become more and more sales ready. Look, to some extent, you can think of that maybe as as a big long continuum. Be you know, from they know nothing about your company to they're renewing their contract for the third time kind of stage. And along that journey, there's probably, you know, there's marketing, there's pre-sales marketing, there's BDRs, there's demo, there's customer success, there's a account reps, AEs, there's all these different players. And you can draw lines where, frankly, wherever you want. 
It just depends on the organization. I had another colleague, her big comment was any structure can work, any infrastructure, any format. The trick is being clear about what that structure is and really being honest in, in delineating the roles and responsibilities. If you want to say, well, marketing is responsible for presenting it on a silver platter and tying it up with the bow and, and, and giving its tails ready to close. Okay, then we need to resource it accordingly. If you want to say, no, 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 we're going to under-resource it and, and it's more about promotion. Okay, then, then marketing is not going to tie it up. We're, we're going to pass along, you know, I'm simplifying, a collection of, of leads that are interested, but not necessarily leads that are ready to buy. Right. And there are pros and cons of all of those. As long as the roles and, and the passovers are, are sort of clearly understood, I think I do think that any structure can work. Roger, thank you so much for sharing some great insights here today. One final question here for you. Where can our audience find you online and what is the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way is actually just through LinkedIn. Roger B on LinkedIn. Happy to, uh, to connect with folks uh, following the podcast. Excellent. Thank you once again, Roger, here. And uh, we look forward to success here at uh, Traction Guest and uh, keep us posted on everything. We'll go ahead and end the show for today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Innovators Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And remember to share this episode with your network. As we mentioned, this episode is brought to you by 2Web. We help your business thrive online. Learn more by visiting our website at 2web.ca.